The Chicago version of Author Showcase features authors based in Chicago or books about Chicago or Chicago-related themes and is produced for ChicagoBroadcastingNetwork.com in conjunction with AuthorsBroadcast.com. Stay tuned to enjoy this episode of Author Showcase. This episode of Author Showcase features author Barbara Barnett. Barbara is the author of Chasing Zebras, the unofficial guide to House MD, and is executive and publisher of blogcritics.org. Today she's here to tell us about her new novel, The Apothecary's Curse, set in both present-day Chicago and Victorian London. Sit back and enjoy learning a little bit more about The Apothecary's Curse by Barbara Barnett. Hi, my name is Barbara Barnett, and I am here to talk with you about my new novel, The Apothecary's Curse, which came out in October from Pyre Books, an imprint of Prometheus. So what inspired me to write this book um, was a, an enduring fascination I've had with the nexus between magic and science, and, and it's always a... It's always been an interest of mine. I've, I'm a scientist by education, but I've always been interested in mythology and magic. And I've always thought it was an interesting area to play with, to wonder about what is magic, what is science. And that really inspired me to find something to write about. Um, I think every author has on their hard drive at least five novels. Um, and it's always been a desire of mine to actually finish one of them. So that's where the apothecary's curse came in. Um, I took that love of that, that science versus magic thing, and I fused it with my love of all things British, all things Victorian, all things history, and also my love of the supernatural ballads of the British Isles. And a lot about the apothecary's curse really plays on a couple of different myths that were then made famous in ballads. The, the Ballad of Thomas the Rhymer, um, the ballad, The Unquiet Grave. Um, and I took all of those things. And then I, I started reading a little bit more about Thomas the Rhymer. And Thomas the Rhymer, who was around in the 13th century, who was a confederate of William Wallace, was said to have been abducted by the fairies. We don't know which fairies. We don't know where exactly. We know where he was abducted from. But what was interesting to me was that Thomas was actually a real person. How could a real person be abducted by the fairies? So he was abducted by the fairies to be returned seven years later supposedly with the gift of prophecy. Not only the gift of prophecy, but that he was also made immortal and still lives in the Eildon Hills in the Borders region of Scotland. He's sort of like a Merlin figure. Well, Thomas really isn't in this novel, but his descendant, one Mr. Galen Erseldoon, and the name Galen Erseldoon is very specific to the region where Thomas was from. Thomas's real name was Lord Thomas Lermont de Erseldoon. He was from this area in the borders. And so Galen is his descendant. And one of the things that Thomas brought back from the fairies, which is not in any legend, is only made up in my fevered brain, is this idea that the fairy 
that abducted him, the elf queen that abducted him, was actually Ermid of the Tuatha de Danann, a semi-deity race that lived mostly, they're associated with Ireland, but also um, I speculate that they may have come through Scotland as well. And in fact, it was Armid, the goddess of healing that abducted Thomas. And when he was returned, he not only had this gift of prophecy and this immortality possibly, but also this extraordinary book and this extraordinary book passed down through time, eventually to Galen. We meet Galen really for the first time where in an argument that he is having with, of all people, Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Sherlock Holmes, who by the way, was from that same borders area of Scotland. Now, you may know, you may not know, Conan Doyle, despite having been the one who's created the most uber rational character in all of fiction believed in fairies until his dying day. How do you reconcile that? Logic, rational thought, and supernatural thought and the fairies. So that really played into it. Of course, one of the most famous quotes from all of Sherlock Holmes is, and I'm paraphrasing it, is the truth is it comes out when no matter when all the other possibilities are exhausted what remains however improbable must be the truth who knows who knows and and that was that was holmes's byword if holmes actually had ever found a case where he couldn't find a logical natural answer who knows, maybe he would have adopted Conan Doyle's own belief in fairies. Anyway, that's kind of where the apothecary's curse came from. What is it about? It's really fantasy meets history, meets medicine, meets mythology, meets science, with a little bit of Conan Doyle sprinkled in. Conan Doyle is a minor character. How does he become a minor character in my novel? He is um, friends. His, his medical mentor was a man called Joseph Bell. Joseph Bell was the inspiration for Holmes. But again, if you know, great. You may not know that Conan Doyle was a physician as well as a novelist and a short story writer and a journalist. And um, Joseph Bell was his medical mentor. My other main character's name is Simon Bell. And Simon is a distant relation of Arthur Conan, uh, sorry, of Joseph Bell. So how does this all come together? Galen Ersel Dune in 1837, he's, he was born in 1587. So really the story is he's already, this, he's already a very old immortal. And he's living in a place called Smithfield Market in London, very poor area. Um, he's cut off all relationships from any of medical society. He was once a favorite in medical society, but it's been a year since he's talked to anyone in the medical community. Simon Bell was one of his acquaintances, more than an acquaintance, although not really ever friends. Simon's wife is dying of cancer of the breast, and he's desperate. He's been to every snake oil salesman and street mountebank to get something to cure his wife of cancer. 
nothing. She's in desperate straits. He's even more desperate because he knows he will not survive without her. He pleads with Erseldun, do you have anything? And Erseldun is known within the medical community as someone who not only fills the prescriptions and instructions of physicians, but often comes up with unique and elaborate cures for things that nobody else can, can know about. Um, so Simon goes to him and begs him, please, 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 may I do this? And he's reluctant. Eventually, Galen says, fine, I will, I will make this for you. And what he does is he consults this ancient book. What he doesn't tell Simon, because Simon doesn't know that Galen is immortal, is that the cure he's going to, to create comes out of this book that his own mistaken use of it made him immortal in the first place. So he makes him this cure very, very carefully. He makes it, he gives it to him and tells Simon, I'm giving this to you, but please understand, if you do not use it exactly as my instructions tell you to, I'm not responsible for the consequences. So he's very, Simon is very ambivalent about the whole thing. And now his wife takes a downturn. He knows she's going to die. He has no choice. He gives her the potion, which he has done some things with because he was curious and because he was ambivalent. He gives her the potion and it kills her immediately with all the earmarks of poisoning. Simon is bereft. He's just killed his wife. He wants nothing to do but to take his own life. So what does he do? He takes the rest of the potion, downs it, nothing happens. Nothing happens. Fast forward, there are things that happened to Galen in the interim that I'm not going to go through because they would be spoilers. Fast forward five years, Simon realizes after many suicide attempts, he cannot die. He's tried it all. Now he's been in a terrible, catastrophic construction accident in the middle of London on the London railway construction. And he is, everyone else is killed. He has not died. Now he's beginning to wonder, what's wrong with me? And at that point, through some certain happenstances, not real happenstances, they make sense and they're logical, he is brought to the attention of a man who is a mad doctor, and by the way, a mad doctor is what psychiatrists were called back then, who is the head of care at Bedlam. Simon goes to Bedlam to meet a man who has been the star attraction in this sort of really horrible, grisly freak show because this man is said to not be able to to die. Anything can be done to him. Any kind of torture can be done to him. He won't die. He could be slashed and he can be burned and he could be broken, but he can't die. So Simon wants to have an audience with this man and for a tidy sum, the director of, the, of Bedlam agrees. And he goes into the institution and he hears a man muttering in the corner. He's, he's, he sees a man, he's brought to this man in a cage. 
who's muttering in the corner, insane stuff. And as he draws closer, he realizes what he's saying is not insane. He's quoting Ovid in Latin. He realizes eventually within that audience that that man is Galen Erseldoon. The story takes place in two timelines, and I've kind of given you a capsule of what happens in the Victorian timeline. So now we go to 21st century, the North Shore of Chicago. And I have to say, the story goes back and forth. It doesn't, there's, it's not the Victorian, and now we're in Chicago. They go back and forth all the way throughout the story. And Galen and Simon who have found each other and lost each other many times over and over through the years are now in the same place by design. They, they, uh, Simon likes to keep tabs on Galen. Um, Galen, not so much Simon, but, but Simon wants to keep tabs on Galen. Simon is still trying to figure out because now he can't die. He can't join his wife. She's dead. He's alive. And now it's been almost two centuries since the Victorian story. And, and Simon is still living. So all Simon wants to do is die. There's only one problem. The book that would have the cure for the immortality is missing and has been missing since 1837. No one knows where it is, least of all Galen. So Simon wants to kind of keep tabs on Galen. They have sort of a love-hate relationship. And in the modern story, um, Simon hears word, he gets a line on the book, possibly. In the meantime, Galen reads in the independent newspaper, the London Independent, which he reads online every morning. He's a man of the century. Um, he reads about a renovation at the site of the old Bedlam Hospital in London, which actually happened a couple years ago. I read about it in the newspaper. That's how I thought of it. Um, but during the excavation in the book, not necessarily in actuality, they uncovered diaries, diaries of this mad doctor who describes in detail the torture of a particular patient who is unnamed at Bedlam during the years 1837 to 1842. Galen knows it's him, and he is to say the least, skittish. He already suffers from terrible PTSD because of his experiences at Bedlam, even 200 years later. And he hears about this and he is absolutely freaked out. He doesn't know what to do. He, his biggest fear in the world is that someone will discover that he's immortal. Which brings me to one of the key themes of the book, which is um, what would someone do if they had the key to immortality? As a society, what would we do as a scientist or as a corporate executive of a big pharmaceutical company? What would you do if you had the ability to uncover the holy grail for thousands of years, the key to immortality? Can make you a lot of money. But Galen understands the consequences are great. He has lived a very long time and has seen what greed and power can do. So 
His biggest fear in the world is discovery. And now this has been discovered. He's never bothered to change his name. He never thought there was a reason to. He'd be in a place for 10 years. He'd move. He'd go on. He'd, he'd live his life. But now he could be discovered, really discovered. So he's very upset. And he goes to take a drive on his motorbike. Chicago, the end of March, a big snowstorm that melts very quickly but leaves us all icy, one of those great lake effect snowstorms. Well, he goes off on his motorbike and heads towards, he, he's, he's now, I should explain that in, in the modern story, Galen is a dealer in rare books and antiquities. And Simon is living quite a nice life in Highland Park in a big mansion where he writes best-selling Holmes pastiches. He writes books about Sherlock Holmes. And as he explains in one of the chapters, Victorian mysteries written by a Victorian mystery. So Galen decides to take a drive up Sheridan Road and because he knows a place beneath the bluff where he could sort of get some peace of mind and sort of regroup himself away from everything up, up in Highland Park. And he goes, goes up along Sheridan Road and, and he has hallucinations. Um, this PTSD plagues him when, he, when something triggers it. And the discovery of the diaries completely triggered a new set of hallucinations. And he sees the knife of this mad doctor, Handley, floating in front of him, about to do something to him. Slams on the brakes of his bike. It's very icy. And the bike catapults down a 150-foot bluff which those of us who live in Chicago know they do exist. Um, it is not a flat land. And he goes plummeting down this cliff, the bike and all. He reaches the bottom of the cliff and people have seen it. Ambulances are called. And now the potential for discovery is really, really real. So I'm going to read an excerpt from the book. It comes from sort of the beginning of the book um, and it takes place in the modern story as opposed to the Victorian story and um, Galen has just had a really bad night and he's discovered that these diaries of the mad doctor Handley have been found at the Bedlam renovation site. Galen awoke to the smell of freshly ground coffee at least He'd somehow remembered to set the machine to auto-grind better than a fucking alarm clock. One eye, then the other, opened into the too bright sunshine leaking through the blinds, reflecting directly into his bleary vision. Bloody hell! He winced at the entropy of papers, folders, books, and electronic paraphernalia sprawled across the floor. When had he done that? Clearly it had not been one of his better nights. At least he'd slept well, a rare enough commodity. No flashbacks, no nightmares, no dreams at all. The first time in four days since the Guardian piece. Thank you, God of tetrahydrocannabinol. Galen's joints cracked with the release of tension as he unwound his limbs from the sofa, yawning his way through the mess. Coffee. Strong. Black coffee. Dark roast. Thick and rich. No sugar. No milk. He set his mug in place and pressed brew. 
the fizz pop pop of the machine and the aroma of Sumatra Reserve absorbed the thundering in his head. He stepped into the shower and let the hot liquid, sharp as needles, cascade through the knots in his shoulders and arms until the headache splintered into insignificance. He could easily spend the morning here until the water ran cold, but he had a business to run. He retrieved the steaming mug, glancing at the empty Lagavulin bottle with regret, and headed into the shop. Simon was right. It was ridiculous to think that the pharmaceutical company would make a connection to him by studying insane asylum diaries of an insane doctor. His thoughts drifted to the Ouroboros book. Was it really possible that Simon had located it after all these years? That book had caused nothing but grief for him. For Simon, even for Simon's poor dead wife, who but for the elixir would be long at her rest, along with her husband. For all his interest in antiquarian books, for all his buying and selling of texts nearly as opaque and fascinating as the Ouroboros book, all his searching for it, part of him recoiled from the very idea of seeing it again. He opened the blinds, dusted the shelves, and opened the shop. Any occupation to distract his thoughts from the book, from Handley's diaries, from... A quicksilver flicker of memory slithered through his mind. His toes curled instinctively as it took hold, and he told himself it wasn't real, even as invisible flames penetrated the thin leather of his sandals. Exquisite agony burned into his soles into his soul, unbound, blistered, and festering. He was held down, shackled, impotent to stop it. The doorbells jangled, and the vision was gone. Good morning, he breathed shakily, forcing a smile. He nodded to the young woman, perusing jars of tea on a low shelf. They, they are all dried in-house, fresh each week, Select what you fancy, and I can bundle them in silk sachets for you, or if you like. Bulk is nice, too. I, I can bundle them. I have a good selection of infusers, and... He hoped she would take it in bulk, and not, cert not certain his trembling hands could manage the dexterity needed for the sachet ribbon. She paused at a large inset bookcase, removing an 18th-century volume, Antipodean Art and Artists. Are you all right, Mr. Erseldoon? Galen blinked. Mrs. Frayne, of course. Where was his mind this morning? The glare. He'd not seen her for the glare. That must be it. Either that or he was finally losing what remained of his sanity. Yes, love, of course, he said too quickly. A late night. He winked as he managed a knowing grin. I've your order right here. He fetched a brown bag from beneath the counter. Tangerine spice tea, three ounces. Perhaps you'd like a cup now. Kettle's hot. Is this the first printing? It is at that, Mrs. Frayne. The plates are in perfect condition. My husband's birthday is Sunday. The art history professor, of course. It's a handsome gift, if a bit pricey, but for you, love, three hundred dollars. She didn't flinch. Can you put it aside for me? I'll pick it up tonight while Charles is teaching. Of course. Sure you wouldn't want to stay, and I've another book, even better, upstairs. She paid for her tea and the book, turning to leave. How might he delay her departure at least for a bit? 
The vision had vanished, vanished when she entered, and he'd really not, rather not be sucked into it again, as long as he was not alone. Sorry, Mr. Ersaldoon, class in half an hour, and I need to finish grading way too many exams before my students descend and demand their inflated A's. You sure you're okay? Yeah, fine. Let me know how you like the tea. By noon, the two vivid flashes of memory had yet to retreat. An endless horror movie in short cuts that would have chased Guillermo del Toro under the bed, trembling with terror. A new vision materialized, this time a flail slicing into his arms, his legs. Horrified, Galen observed as his skin peeled away, then muscle, then sinew, flowered open, revealing the white of bone before it, too, broke away to expose the black gelatin of his marrow. He heard a scream, not knowing whether it was memory or imagination or real. Oh, for Christ's sakes, Galen, get a grip. No one will come for you. Don't be such a fucking twit. Who would care now about a man, no matter the overblown claims about him, hanged in Newgate nearly two centuries ago? A walk. He needed a walk. The fresh, clean, cold air courtesy of yesterday's snowfall. Galen flipped the sign in the window to closed and stepped into the midday throng of Northwestern students, surprised to feel the warmth of the sun as if yesterday's freak blizzard had been a momentary meteorological memory lapse. The remains of snowdrifts had melted into puddles and slush. Water dripped from the L-tracks. A train clattered overhead, leaving in its wake a wall of mist and steam, embedded with rainbows of bent sunlight dangling mid-air. Galen reached out as if he might capture one in his hand. Sandaled college students hurled dripping snowballs at each other like late-season skiers in sleeveless tank tops enjoying the paradoxes of a Chicago spring. He barely noticed them, blurs in a post-impressionist painting, as he wended his way through puddles, skateboarders, and bicycles. He needed to drown the visions, the screams, the memories from his mind. For that, he knew the perfect place, a secluded patch of rock and sand up the shore near Simon's house. He'd spotted it a year or two ago beneath a high bluff as he'd hiked along the beach, not realizing how far north he'd ventured, surprised to spot Simon's promontory, 100 feet above him and 10 miles from home. There he could lose himself in the crash, to the crash of the waves upon the rocks, and dive into the bracing chill of Lake Michigan in spring. He fetched his Triumph sport bike from its parking space, and took off north along Sheridan. The alabaster gleam of the Baha'i Temple loomed to his left as he rounded a turn, the shoreline snaking westward. He stopped the bike, picturing the temple's gardens edged with snow as surely they would be. Maybe he'd end the ride here, lose himself in the great seven-sided hall, surrounded by centuries of wisdom echoing with each footstep expansive as the building itself. Galen aborted the idea as a school bus pulled up to the building. A tour. Damn. What if he lost it right there in the middle of all those kids? Bad idea. 
The terrain changed dramatically, and now he rode high above the lake, through bluffs that wound into blind curved, steep, rocky ravines on either side. He could hear the wind-whipped waves crashing sixty, eighty feet below into the base of the cliff. Stopping at the top of a bluff, he looked down, watching the last vestiges of snow clinging to the boulders, melting into waterfalls, and cascading down to the beach below. Galen dismounted the bike and picked his way through trees and rocks, descending a forested embankment, thinking better of it when he lost his footing on the ice, one sandal slipping from his foot. He'd have to bike it. Carefully, he climbed through brush and loose boulders and back on to the Triumph. He started it up again and put it in gear, about to make a turn down the narrow dirt road to the beach. Startled by a sound close by, Galen turned, and then he saw it. A hand, disembodied and wielding a jagged knife, its metal gleam blinding him. Bloody hell. Spooked, he slammed on the footbrake just as the bike began to roll down the sharp incline, skidding badly on an icy patch. And then he was in free fall, no longer on the bike. The sudden exhilaration of flight was soon replaced by the realization he was plummeting down the embankment, rock and ice sharp as daggers. Sliced through his clothing as he tried, reaching out with his good hand to gain purchase on the slippery outcropping or grab on to a tree branch. The triumph followed, hurtling through the bluff, hitting it, not five feet above him, bursting into flames, shrapnel raining down on him as he continued to descend the steep rock. The pounding of his heart thundered in his ears and melted into the crackle of flames and the roar of the waves as he plunged the rest of the way to the boulder breakwater below. An echo from high above floated just beyond his ability to protest. Someone call 911. It has been so much fun exploring the world of Galen Erseldoon and Simon Bell, and so much so that I'm already working on book two, um, and I hope you enjoy it. If you need video production for your business or organization, take a look at renoweb.net. Visit chicagobroadcastingnetwork.com to find more interesting Chicago-related audio and video programs, and be sure to follow us on Spotify, iTunes, Podomatic, or Google Play. Thanks to Stephen Solomon for the use of his performance and original composition written as the Authors Showcase theme song.